I want you to join me, if you can, in Hosea chapter 6. Uh, for those of you, maybe if you're new to holding a Bible in your hands and the blue Bible that someone gave you, it's page 489, uh, or you can find the table of contents or just Google it, right? So here we are in Hosea chapter 6, trying to pick up where we left off. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll wrap up our time in this book of the Bible. And if you find yourself asking, why are we spending this time together in this obscure Old Testament book. If you're wondering, like, well, why are we in this book that most of us have never heard of and most of us probably have never read, then I hope today you'll actually find an explicit answer to that question. So over the last couple of weeks, as we've been digging into this Old Testament prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets, that is one of the smaller prophets that, that we have toward the end of the Old Testament, somewhere about seven to 800 years before Jesus came, God speaks to his people. God reveals himself to his people. And the thing that God does all throughout the Bible is not only does he send Hosea to deliver a message to people by the words of his mouth, but he also delivers a message through Hosea, through Hosea's life. And so Hosea not only comes, as, as we read from here to the end of this particular book, with a message, a message of warning and a message of encouragement that we ought to draw near to God, but he also has a message that he delivers through Hosea's life. In the very beginning, the first few chapters, we saw that Hosea was commanded to do a very difficult thing. God said to Hosea, go and marry and be faithful to a woman who will never be faithful to you. Go and be faithful and love a woman who will desire prostitution. And then, as she comes to him and and he tries to win her over, she's lost and runs away. So much so that her decisions put her in a place where she's out of control. She has no control over her own destiny, and she is the property of someone else. And instead of Hosea just getting up and moving on, remarrying and trying again somewhere else, to demonstrate God's love for his people, Hosea demonstrates his love for his wife, who is unable to save herself by buying her back. And he takes matters into his own hands. Instead of waiting for this unfaithful person to come back to him, he goes after her. And this picture, this message that God gives us, not only to these people, but to us, I would argue, is the message that he has been communicating, not only through Hosea's life's and life and words, but I would argue through the life and words of Jesus. That's who we want to pick up. And this message that Hosea is preaching over the rest of his life unfolded for the rest of the chapters, we want to spend our time in Hosea chapter 6. And God says to His people through the message of Hosea, and I would argue that God says to us, verse 1, come, let us return to the Lord. For He has torn us, that He may heal us. He has struck us down, he will bind us up. After two days, He will revive us. And on the third day, He will raise us up that we may live before Him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. And Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed when I restore the fortunes of my people. May these words that we read be words that stand over and above any words of mine. May, be the, may they be the words that we not simply 
read, but begin to read us. So there's a lot of words, a lot of names, a lot of things going on in this chapter that I would argue are probably foreign to us. Words and names that even if we're familiar with a lot of stories in the Bible, there's some names and and some themes going on here that that are fairly vague. Things that aren't necessarily common. In fact, some of them that I can show you for the rest of this book only show up here in the book of Hosea. Which leads us to see how God has a specific order, a specific word, a specific message for a specific people. Good news number one here. I mean, this is, this is, this is an incredibly good thing to hear. Our God does not abandon us and leave us, but our God has a word for us. Our God speaks to us. And God, I would argue, has put people in your life, not any different than Hosea even, to speak words over you, to speak something to you. God has put people in your life. And I would even argue if you would allow to kind of sift through the ignorance and sometimes the Green Bay Packer jokes, God might have put my own, bre- my own breath and lungs standing here in front of you to say something to you. And in a miraculous fashion, in the same way that a donkey speaks to, to, to Balaam in the book of Numbers, maybe, just maybe, God could be speaking through me to you. He speaks. This is what God does. He sends a word to these people. And he uses names that are probably uncommon to us. We saw Ephraim last week is another name of one of the tribes that's assimilated into Israel. So while idolatry came along and split God's united kingdom under the good king David into two separate kingdoms that became Judah and then Israel, so also the tribes, those 12 tribes that split out amongst those two kingdoms included Ephraim that was lumped into, Ju- into Israel. So you see Ephraim, but you also see some names of places as we shared with you last week. We saw that some of these names that used to be marked by good things, and I encourage you, if you haven't got a chance, I mean, if, those are, if those are kind of confusing, go, man, podcast us, SiouxFallsConnection.com. You can get it online or you can go to iTunes. You can podcast some of this. But this is meant to be a marker of a place like Shechem or like Gilead, a place that used to be a marker of where God had delivered them and God had done great things for them. And now, instead, it was a marker. These places were known like we would know a place like Sin City. Las Vegas isn't known for, you know, a great awakening taking place. By God's grace and mercy, maybe it will. But it isn't right now. In the same way that now, some of these places that used to be marked by a deep and abiding presence of God and a movement of God are now marked by sin. It says that it's in our they're filled with evildoers, with villains and robbers. And then you see this parallel again with, with Hosea speaking as if he's speaking to his wife, and now he's speaking to these people, but he's using language that he might really use for an unfaithful wife. And, and he goes back and forth, and as we saw the last couple of weeks, listening to Hosea is sometimes like listening or being kind of in an awkward moment where a couple is fighting in front of you, where like mom and dad are fighting and the kids are just kind of waiting for it to be over. And it creates a sick feeling in you. And this, this is meant to be the language here. And so when he says that, that Israel and Ephraim have now engaged in whoredom and prostitution, it's meant to make you feel awkward. You're meant to, meant to feel really sick, like a husband accusing his wife of faithfulness right in front of you. But he's using those words to point out what we call idolatry idol worship now specifically over the last few chapters and over the next couple of chapters the idol that they were worshiping is Baal or Baal and for us I would argue with like A.W. Tozer one of my hero theologians and pastors he puts it this way idolatry is simply entertaining thoughts of God that are unworthy of him to simply believe something about God that is unworthy of him and so for them it manifested itself at the beginning of the Old Testament, in very primitive and archaic ways, ways that wouldn't appeal to us and wouldn't seem tempting to us. For instance, as the first covenant is broken and another covenant is reestablished, these people turn away from God into the things they would rather worship instead of God. And so we see the Sinai covenant given to a group of people, and they craft for themselves a golden calf, a golden figure that they make with their own hands, and they begin to worship it. Now, you and I know that's probably not that tempting. I mean, maybe you've got that in your house. I apologize for that. I'm being insensitive uh, to you. Maybe that's your thing. But for most people, it's not. We're not tempted to worship a, a golden figure. We're much more advanced. We're much more complicated than that. And we don't simply worship a thing. But we rather, just like believing that a golden figure is somehow divine and has power, entertain thoughts of God that are unworthy of Him. 
So of course we wouldn't worship a golden calf. But we worship a whole lot of other things. And we would exalt and look for salvation to other things. And the way you see this played out for us is that we, we take a thing that's meant to be good and meant to be a gift of God, and instead of worshiping God and thanking God for it, we hold on to it and grip it like a child and say, mine. It's mine. And we worship the thing more than we worship the giver. Now for us, this plays out in a whole number of ways, but the way that it was playing out for these people is that they were giving credit for prosperity to someone other than God, and so that they were turning away from God. They were taking things, matters into their own hands. How does this play out for us? Because this is a concept we need to understand every time we open Hosea, to think about what an idol is or what we might worship. Here's the best example I think I can see in, in this broken relationship that now exists. So if, if I, as a father, buy a child a toy to play with, then great, I'm a good father. But if I buy that gift as a way so that I don't have to play with my kids and said to pacify them, then I'm not a good father and I'm not being helpful. So also, if I as a child am given a gift and I love the gift more than the person, then I'm not a good child. So how do you see this? This is a clear example. Like, so this is bad. If, if, if a child would rather play on the play- playground than play with their dad, that's, that's a pretty good analogy for an idol. But so also, and thank God he's not this way, mark this for parents, if you buy a playground for your kids so that they will be pacified and go over there and play and not play with you, the same brokenness can be visible, can't it? And so God has done things for us. God has has cared for us and God has cared for his people, not so that they would just enjoy these things and call them mine, but so that they would see him and his goodness. They would see his character. And we regularly would rather glorify the things than glorify God. We would regularly rather worship a person than worship Jesus. We would rather have a superhero that's imaginary than a real hero that, like Jesus. So nail this one down. This is the context in which we find Hosea speaking to a people who have traded God for something else. And Hosea entreats to them, come, let's return to the Lord. Let's return to him. It says that he will revive us. If we turn to him, he will raise us up. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And it says that his love, as we turn to him, will be like showers. They'll be like spring rains that water the earth. And the love that he gives us never goes away. The comparison, you see, is right after that. So what do we do with these people? You can kind of hear Hosea talking with his wife at this point. What, What do I do with these people? Because your love, even though God's love is like showers and like spring rains that nourish and cover the earth, your love in return is like dew. It's gone immediately. Now the last couple of weeks we've unpacked this. Sometimes the English language does a really poor job of conveying biblical principles, especially in the New Testament where the languages of love are Greek and there's, there's a four different kinds of love. There's a picture of love that's, that's sensual and erotic in nature. There's a kind of love that you have for a brother or for, for a friend and there's a kind of love that's a, that's a parental or a guardian kind of love that like a child would receive from a parent. And then there's the agape, this, this love that God shows and these are all, I believe, demonstrated for us in Jesus Christ. But, but we see that play on words in the Hebrew here as well. A demonstration of the same word, love, but two different manifestations of it. So the way that I talked about this is we, we do this in, in English all the time, and I'm the worst at it, so I'm not accusing you of anything. I'm, I'm asking you to join me in confessing this and repenting of it. But I tend to find myself using, and not redeeming language, but using language poorly to describe things that are utterly unlike one another and using the same words to describe them, right? So you will regularly hear me say things like, I love buffalo wings. I love McDonald's french fries. Don't judge me, I just do, okay? But then you'll hear me say something like, I love my wife and I love my family. And what am I saying? Am I saying that my affections for french fries are the same as my affections for the people that that I'm entrusted to care for till I die? And this, this is the picture. This is what's going on. Because as you saw here, God's love is perfect. It's unending. It's nourishing. It's, it causes flourishing. Did you catch that? It's like the flowers of spring 
Oh man, we get to appreciate this, don't we? We get to appreciate the green that bursts, fart, bursts, bursts forth out of the brown and white nastiness of winter, don't we? It comes out. And we see it. But the kind of love that we demonstrate that, that bursts forth in, in little pieces, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll edit that, and you won't even know that on the podcast, you won't even hear it. right? The, the kind of love that we have that bursts forth intermittently and goes away can't be compared to His love. And you begin to see the, the difference between the kind of love that we have for french fries and the love that we have for family. Insert whatever you love if you don't like french fries. Insert the thing that you love that, that seems to come and go. Because after all, as much as you like, picture this for just a minute. Picture the thing that you love that tastes the best. What if I gave it to you for three square meals a day for weeks on end? Get it? You see how that love would begin to wane? Ever been on a trip where you eat out so many times that things that used to be delicious, you're like, oh, it's time to eat, I don't want to. You just need a home-cooked meal. You get it? That's our love. That's our affection. That's the way we're wired. We take something that even that is good, but our love wanes for it because we have no real commitment to it. We only like the benefits that it gives us. And God, my friend, is not like that. And just like Israel here, you have worn out your welcome time and time again with our God. Your weakness and my unfaithfulness, your rebelliousness and my sinfulness wear God out. And yet He still, over and over and over again, has not lost any love for us along the way. And the picture's clear. You've got God who gives a rain, and our love is more like a dew. Ever done that? You ever woken up in the morning, looked outside? Did it rain? It must have rained. Well, then shortly after, you realize it's just due. It's just kind of a fake thing. It looks like it's there. It looks like something deep, but it's actually fake. And we're meant to see a glimpse into the kind of affection that we naturally have that looks like something, but under the, in, underneath it has no substance. So what does God do? In verse 5, it says He sends prophets. It says that He speaks words. It says that He speaks judgment. And we saw this over the last couple of weeks. It's not a bad thing that God loves us and sends us judgment. It's a good thing, Right? A good father yells at his children to get out of the street. And while the child may think it feels like judgment, that's actually love. A bad father goes, hey, good luck. See what happens. And God is not like that. God sends his word. God sends, it says, judgment, prophets, words to, to draw people back to himself. And then the crux of, I would argue, maybe this entire book, the crux of this entire argument here is found in verse 6. Why? Why does God do that? Why, why is God after us? What is God like? It says that God, in verse 6, says, For I desire steadfast love, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Just like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. And there they dealt faithless, faithlessly with me. That's meant to be a play on words. Adam might be a city in this particular region, but it's meant to catch your attention to the first covenant, to the first opportunity that people were given to live in communion and live underneath God's steadfast love. And what did they do? They wanted fruit. They wanted knowledge rather than God. So let me just kind of break down these couple of words, and then we're going to jump into the New Testament. I hope all this will come clear. This picture of steadfast love versus sacrifice. It, it seems that Hosea is trying to say something about the character of God and what God wants and actually desires and that which He wants as a preference to what actually exists. It's not simply saying that sacrifice is bad. It's not saying that burnt offerings are bad. But instead, it's a picture of of the character of God for something that which is much, much better. So hearken back to Adam, right? Adam had one job. His job, along with Eve, the picture of the first people, was to simply live in communion with God. Just hang out with God. Be in communion with Him. All his jobs were, were to garden, eat, enjoy. Be with me. This is paradise. And one job. And one rule. 
And the one rule was, hey, by the way, in the course of this, don't eat out of this one tree. And as a picture that we might see and begin to understand for ourselves, when, when you put this kind of goodness and you put this kind of paradise in the hands of people, our favorite thing to do it is, is to corrupt it, is to destroy it, to think we deserve it and to take power over it and ignore God. So also the story of Adam. And as we saw in the course of this book, we see that Adam and Eve's first response was to feel naked. They realized that they were uncovered. And as we've seen for the course of this book, the first fruit of brokenness, of sin, is sexual sin. For which the people of God are called to uphold something much more beautiful, much more amazing. But we are just like our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and this is our brokenness. This is what happens, and we want to cover what we've done. We want to cover the things for which we are ashamed. We want to hide that which we are ashamed of. And so Adam and Eve, the first thing they do is they run and hide, and God walks back into the, ar- back into the garden. Walks is a metaphorical term, obviously, because what God does have feet. How does that work, right? He, he's, he's in perfect communion with them, and he says, where are you? As if he doesn't know. And Adam said, And Eve, as he finds them, comes out and they said, look, we hid because we were naked. And the thing that God does is he takes animal skins and he gives them to Adam and Eve to cover themselves. Make sure you don't miss this. Adam and Eve were in perfect communion. Their communion was broken by their rebelliousness, but God and his mercy didn't want to leave them out literally in the cold and naked. And instead, an animal or more died to cover their nakedness. And while they were kicked out of paradise, while they deserved to be destroyed, instead God gives them chance after chance after chance after chance over the course of the entire Bible. And every moment that he gives another chance, sacrifice happens. There is blood to atone for that which is broken. And God begins by killing the animal and giving them skins to cover their failure. Begin to sound familiar? And God doesn't desire death and sacrifice to cover. What God desires is steadfast love. God desires not what you can do to cover and not what someone else can do to cover, but God simply desires communion. How does this play out for us? Think about the difference between we, the way we understand this. What, what it's saying pretty explicitly is that God desires being with us and knowing us and being loyal to us, having peace and mercy with us. God does not desire for us to fix that which is broken. For us instead is to know Him, love Him, and find mercy in Him, not to cover ourselves. Because this is what I think I can point out. Even when we try, we fail. My my favorite... uh, of, of ancient mythology, my favorite are the kind of uh, Mesopotam- Mesopotamian uh, narratives of creation and of gods that, that hover over all of creation. And they had kind of a thing, and this shows up in Greek mythology as well, that the gods kind of joked at the humans. Because every time the humans tried to fix something, they replaced whatever they fixed with a bigger mess. You get this? This is our thing. We do this, right? You need heat? That's great. Let's burn some fossil fuels. Whoops, got another problem. Get it? Got an infection? That's cool. We can fix that. Here's some antibiotics. What's, what happens then, right? Well, then, when, then we have, like, we have special strains of, of things that, that are immune to antibiotics, and then they're like, they're like super infections, and we're like, oh, yeah? Oh, yeah, super infections? Here's some super antibiotics. And pile it on the top. Get, get what I mean? You see where this goes? And so even though we come up with very clever and creative ways to solve problems, we unwittingly create more. This is what we do. Oh yeah? Oh yeah, you need to get from here to there? Let's build some roads and let's give everybody cars. That's a great idea. Until about 5 o'clock. And then the thing that was a solution is now a thing we see as a problem. You get it? This is what we do. This is our lot. And every time we take matters into our own hands, we're like, we can fix this. I can clean this up, man. I can do this. And then unwittingly, we fix the problem and displace it to something else. This is what we do. And every solution we propose brings with it its own complicated set of more problems. This is our lot. This is who we are. And God is saying here, look, I'm not trying to get you to fix your problems. I don't want you to cover your failure. 
So a sacrificial system that existed to atone for their failure was good. And it was a recognition by these people that they had failed and someone was going to pay. The guy who built that road, he was like, this is going to be great, right? This is going to be great. There's going to be people going to drive, but about 5 o'clock, someone's going to pay. Been there? Someone's going to pay. And so, so there was a way in which this sacrificial system of atoning for their sins, the archaic and pagan to us, pointed to something about God that's true, that he didn't want to leave us out there. But neither, according to verse 6, does he want the solution to be in our hands. Because when it's in our hands, we make bigger messes. Think of it this way. This is, one is atonement and one is communion. Um, like, my wife doesn't want me to cash in brownie points. She just wants me to be a good husband. You know what I mean? You been there? My wife doesn't want roses to make up for my failures. What she really wants is for me to stop messing up. You see the difference? I mean, don't get me wrong. When I mess up, I'm going to go, oh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to do whatever I can. But, but, but deep down, my wife is not like, I would like flowers today. Therefore, I hope Jonathan would go say something really insensitive and stupid. That isn't what she desires. She doesn't desire the reconciliation that comes after brokenness. She wishes that it would just stop breaking. And I'm working on that. I'm working on that. I'm trying to just love and cherish and have steadfast love for my wife that isn't like dew that goes away when I think there's something better in the world. I'm trying for that. But as long as I'm trying to fix it, you know how this is going to play out, right? There's still going to be need for, I'm sorry, forgive me, I apologize. And God is saying, I don't want your apology. I want you. I don't want you to try to fix your problems. I don't want the burnt offerings. I want, according to the end of verse 6, I just want you to know me. And if you would know me, if you would see me for who I am, then the rest of this stuff will fall into place. So if you've got a blue Bible, I want you to join me. Uh, we're going to be, and the blue Bible will be in page 527. Otherwise, you can look in Matthew chapter 9. And I want you to join me in Matthew chapter 9. And hopefully, some of these things, maybe the questions you've had will kind of come, come into focus here. This man named Jesus goes and he is beginning a movement to point to God. In verse 9, I want to begin reading. And Jesus passed on from there. Just so you know, this particular chapter, I like to call this the Jesus ticks off all the Pharisees chapter. So each and every one of them is a story about Jesus. It kind of really makes the, these Pharisees angry. Um, this is the religious people. These are the people who are experts in atoning for their own sin and covering their sin. Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, this is right after he healed a guy and it made him angry as well, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Stop right there. The Romans had come in and had taken over this nation after the Assyrians at the end of Hosea take over Israel and Judah. Some other people trade hands. And then finally the Romans come along. Some of you, you're good with your, your Western civilization history here. The Romans come in and take over this, this particular this property and they're, they're occupying it. And so they don't really give them power, but they, they kind of do. And the way to get people to work for them is they entice them. And so they have these guys who come along called tax collectors. That, because after all, they have to keep keep funding the empire, and so they have to collect taxes, and they said, hey, who can do this? Who knows where all the money is? And so they, they recruited some guys, and they said, hey, by the way, you know, we don't love you or care for you. We're just going to run your nation and benefit from you, and we need, to, we need to collect some money from you, so this is worth our while. So conquering you uh, kind of accrued some debt, and we want to pay for it. So here's what we'll do. We'll offer you, if you will collect this tax for us, we'll let you collect whatever you want to pay your own salary. And so they these people were essentially turncoats. They were essentially traitors. No one liked them. Right? It'd be like if someone, I don't want to demonize anybody, so let's do the least. Let's say Canada takes over the United States. Just run with me, okay? So Canada takes over the United States, and, you know, because we're hashtag America, South Dakota, we fight it off the best we can. I know some of you, you know, you probably have guns in your pockets right now. Um, but let's imagine what we would do when, like, the person in our crew is like, you know what? Hey, Canada, I'm going to help you out. You want to take this whole place over? Let me help you out. Let me turn on all my friends, and let me help you control them. That's a tax collector. 
And Jesus walks up to this traitor. Jesus walks up to this guy who everyone would have known was a turncoat. Jesus walked up to the person who had literally sold himself to the highest bidder. Here, Gomer. Here, the prostitute wife of Hosea. The person who everyone would have labeled as a tax collector and would have known that they had sold their soul to the devil. And Jesus walks up to them in verse 9 and he says, You follow me. He rose up and he followed him. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, this would have been a way of endorsing the people and offering them a sense of intimacy and bringing them into it. As Jesus reclined at the table of the house, behold, I don't know if you caught this, right? Because this is what Jesus tends to do when you finally get it, that Jesus isn't after you to destroy you. It's really exciting and he can't keep it a secret. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many, many tax collectors, many traitors and turncoats and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, that is Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So if you've been wondering, Jonathan, why are we in this obscure book of Hosea? Why are we looking at this picture of a man who, who marries a prostitute? That's ick, and I don't really want to talk about that. I don't really want to think about that. And I don't know how to explain that to my kids. If you're wondering, why are we doing this? Why are we learning about this? I think you have, hopefully, your answer right here in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus says, go and learn it. Go and learn it. Why? Why would we need to learn it? What is, what's going on here that we would need to know? You see, these Pharisees thought that they could fix their own problems. And they were best at fixing their own problems. The problem is they didn't know how to fix the problems that were created after they fixed their problems. So they kept adding rules and regulations. Oh yeah, you broke that rule? Well, here's what you need to do. You need to follow these six rules. Okay, thanks for that. Oh, but I broke rule number five. Uh, of those six to fix for that one thing. Okay, cool. Well, here's seven more rules to fix for that one you broke. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, but I, but I broke the seventh one. You, you get the picture? And somewhere along the line, all the broken rules stem back to a sinful, idolatrous nature. And all the rule following that you can come up with, all of the fixing that you can creatively aspire to will only mask the problem and cover it up. It will not fix it. That's, I mean, it's the irony. This is, this, is, this is human culture, is it not? Everyone. Oh, you got people breaking rules? You know, oh, we'll fix them. We'll pass some more laws. That's what we'll do. We'll fix them with more laws. Those lawbreakers, that's what they need. You know what happens? I'm not, I'm, I'm not, don't hear me wrong. I'm not against that. Thank God for our government and for representative democracy. I love it. I'm, I'm excited about it, okay? But just know that you can legislate all you want, and you won't get to the heart of the matter because this is what we do. We heap problems on ourselves with these kinds of solutions. And that's what the Pharisees were good at. And because they were good at it, they were really good at telling who was in and who was out. And they created an elaborate system for knowing who was theirs and who was out. And Jesus walks in there and he says, you need to go read Hosea. You need to go read Hosea. You need to go and learn in verse 13 what it means to desire mercy and sacrifice. Skip over to verse, chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, just a couple of pages over from where you are. At that time, in verse 1, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. This is the Sabbath. This is a special day with a special list of rules for it. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So they're walking through the field. They're hungry. It's the Sabbath. And so they just kind of take, instead of having all their food prepared for them the night before, as was the typical custom, they were walking, and they were kind of preparing their own food by taking some grain, probably grinding it in their hands and eating them. I, I don't know if that's, I've never done that before. Uh, when I take wheat, I break it, stick it in like I'm a hillbilly with a, with a you know, with a, with a toothpick sticking in my mouth. I don't know. I would never eat it. That's what they're doing. They're eating. Walking across, eating it. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your look what your disciples are doing. What is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, 
Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he's talking about a story in Samuel. Have you not heard what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, he now entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is right here. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man, that is the, 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 the human one, is in fact the Lord of the Sabbath. Did you catch that again? He said, if you had known, if you had known exactly what was going on, if you had read Hosea, then you wouldn't be in the mess you're in. So what's he saying? It seems to me he's saying, for you and for me, as we think about what it must have been like for a man like Hosea to love and cherish a wife who is habitually unfaithful to him, begins to paint a picture for us, a God who loves us and is faithful to us regardless of what we do. And Jesus is saying, if you understood, if you understood my great love for you, if you understand that that our God isn't interested in having you cover things up, but our God is interested in having you close to him, then maybe you would do the right thing. Because instead of celebrating that this Jesus, this rabbi, who's doing some good teaching by pulling out scripture out of Hosea to make a point, and for them to be angry about it, if they didn't see that Jesus helping these people was a good thing, then they must be missing the point there somewhere. You'd think they would celebrate it. Oh man, those tax collectors are a mess. Boy, I wish somebody would go and help them. And instead they said, you know, let's just cut them out of the loop completely. Here is this good news for us. God is not interested in you covering up your mistakes. God is interested in you May this be an ethos that we have. I think this exists on multiple levels. Because if we're going to be the people that God has called us to be, then Jesus tells the Pharisees and he tells us, you better get this one right. You had better get this one right. God's acceptance, God's love for us is not predicated upon your sacrifice or your ability to cover your mistakes. God's acceptance in His love is predicated upon His steadfast mercy. we got to get this one right. If we're going to be the people of God who draw people close to God, we have to be the ones that display the character of God to the world and understand that a husband like Hosea desired to have an unfaithful wife back in the same way that our God on our worst day, on our most sinful day, wishes you would just run back to Him. We've got to get this one right. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you missed it. It's about God's love and his steadfast love. It's not about what you can do to fix it. Instead of saying like, oh, I wish, you can hear Hosea saying this, like, it's not that I wish you would just come back. It's, I wish, Hosea is saying to Gomer, that you never cheated on me. And, and when this brokenness takes place, it's, you don't simply just say, hey, I wish you would come back and, and not do that. You want to say, like, I wish you would just love me. If you loved me, this wouldn't happen. Hosea didn't just want her to stop cheating. He wanted her to love him. And Jesus tells these Pharisees, go, read a book about a guy who marries a prostitute to demonstrate God's love to his people. This is what I think it means for us. On an individual level, this means that we have to resolve to have no more fake apologies. So right now, some of you, you're, you're scared to death that some of the people around you will find out something about you. And you know what you're doing? You're trying to cover yourself. Some, right now, you're, you're like, if, if someone knew, if someone in this room knew the secret, I don't know what I would do. It's terrifying. They wouldn't like me. They'd kick me out. And right now, so what's your response? It's not steadfast love and leaning to God and his forgiveness. You, you cover it. I mean, sure, you don't kill an animal and wrap skins around you to cover your sin, but you cover it. Lies, stories, excuses, fake apologies that don't really admit guilt but just kind of placate the blame. 
Here's what I think this means. If we're a people that recognize God's mercy for us, then we can dispense with that. Oh, feel the refreshment that comes over this. You don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to impress the people around you. You don't have to impress me. You don't have to impress the people around you. Look, look, lean in God's steadfast love. Stop trying to atone for the things that are broken. Stop hiding. Stop pretending. Let me bust in here and just let me let you know something. God already knows. He was there when you did it. He saw your thought process when you made that terrible decision. He was there. He watched the whole thing happen. Pretending like it didn't doesn't lean into His steadfast love. It runs away from it. And it points you back to yourself and your own sinfulness. This is a good news for you and for me. We can just dispense with fake apologies. We can dispense with hiding sin. Feel the freedom. Like, it's okay. And I hope I lead by example. It's okay to admit when you're wrong. Let us be the kind of people that it's, it's acceptable and okay to say, hey, I messed up. What does this mean for our church? Some of you are kind of watching this whole, who's this, what's this whole Jesus thing and what's this thing coming to life? What's a church being planted in, in Sioux Falls for? I think this is what this means for us. This will give you a window into, into maybe who we want to be. Let us be a people who have a culture and ethos of steadfast love and not covering things up. Let us be a people defined by receiving into our company, receiving into our lives, receiving, I know, into your home people that would freak you out, bug you out, and do things that make you feel uncomfortable. Why? Because we have nothing to hide. And if we're going to be a people who don't cover up, then we let people see our sin. And then we jump out boldly, courageously, hoping that they will demonstrate for us, instead of criticism and rejection like the Pharisees, they will demonstrate God's steadfast love. In fact, they may even call you out on it before you're able to say it. Sinner, if a Christian disagrees with your lifestyle, he or she loves you. Let's dispense the notion that we have to hide it and cover up. I and mean, when someone sees it, it's an, they're an enemy. So some of you right now, you're, you're thinking, like, if someone, if someone finds out about me, I'm going to cover this up. And how do we cover it up? We tend to cover it up by either, either excuses, making up for it, or we just bail. We cover it up like Adam and Eve by just running and hiding. Right now, even right now, some of you are like, this is freaking me out. I do not want these people to know about me, and we may never see you again. In that case, God still loves you. His steadfast love is, is, is being poured out on you, and if I never get a chance to tell you this again, He is after you, and He will make you miserable while you run until you turn back and come to Him. And I pray for you, and this is going to sound awful, but you hear me all, it says, I hope you're, as you're running from God, I hope you're miserable. I hope you're just miserable. I know that's a, what a horrible guy. What, why is he saying that? I hope you are so uncomfortable until you find your rest in him. So if I don't see you in your run because this freaks you out, that's okay. I love you. I still love you. I'm not going to change my mind about you. No criticism for you, but God's going to run you down and he's going to make you feel weird until you finally are received into the company that he has set here for you. We stop intentionally covering up our failures. Uh, some of you have seen this um, in gospel community. Some of you are freaked out. You probably, maybe you said or did something in a, in a small group, and you're like, you're freaked out because you said something you shouldn't have said, or you feel like you've crossed the line and revealed something about yourself you shouldn't, and you want to bug out and run and cover it up. I feel you. I'm right with you. But we're practicing this. We are steadily, by God's grace, uncovering ourselves and trusting that his steadfast love can cover us. This means that secondarily, we're like a teaching hospital. Did you catch how Jesus interpreted the words of Hosea? God did not send Jesus for those that are righteous, because namely they're not righteous, but they believe they're righteous. And God didn't send them, God didn't send his son Jesus to them, he sent Jesus to save the people who can't get their life together. And when you get to that point where like, I can't do this, I can't fix this, this is all, this is all, man, this is a real, this is a real painful thing for me, I can't figure it out. God's like, good, that's the whole point, that's why I sent Jesus. And so as a result, we're like a hospital. So I've heard this before. Some people talk about like the church of Jesus Christ isn't just like a showcase for saints, right? We just show off how good and great we are because that would be like the Pharisees, right? But instead, it's like a hospital for sinners. It's a hospital for broken people. And that word's right out of Jesus' mouth. 
that he came like a hospital, like a physician to people who are in need. But I, I'm going to push a step further. We're not just like a hospital. Connection Church is like a teaching hospital. You ever been to a teaching hospital? Hmm. It's messy, right? Somebody want to take blood from you at a teaching hospital? You're going to get stuck like 16 times, but eventually they're going to get, they're going to get some blood, that's for sure. You been there? And they walk in and there's the doctor who's like, ah, I'm the expert, but oh, so you know, like we're, we want to teach other people to be experts too. And so my friend here is going to assist. And by assist, they mean like you're about to be a pincushion, bro. And so he's like, hey, I want, they're going to help you. They're going to do this for you. And would you, would you allow them to do that? Or would you allow them to stand there? Right? This is Connection Church. This is us. I am not the expert to which everyone turns. This is a teaching hospital. We're going to minister to one another. And friends, it's going to be messy. Someone's going to get stuck. But here's the cool thing that happens. The good physician, Jesus, who heals all things, will use you and me as like apprentice doctors along the way. And I think that if, if we begin to let this wash over us and we begin to let ourselves kind of just embrace this idea that, that God is for us and that he wants us to expose to him that which he already is aware of to receive his love and mercy, just like Hosea jumped out there to run down his prostitute of a wife, I think maybe we begin to see something amazing. And to wrap up that point, I mean, just, don't you want to be around people? Don't you want to be around people who when they find out the deep, dark secrets, they don't reject you, they don't kick you out? Don't you want that? But lastly, I think this has maybe some words for us some words for us and for our culture. And I want to end on this. If our standing before God has been firmly established in Jesus Christ, and if His steadfast love for you and for me is not dependent on our ability to cover our sin, but on His ability to cover, atone for, and forgive our sin, then not only does it relinquish us of this great debt, but it also frees us to let go of our sense of control. It relinquishes, or I hope, I hope, I hope it like kind of sets us free from our desire to have control and vengeance. Because make no mistake about it, the events of the last couple of days were perpetrated by people who desperately wanted to earn the approval of God. They desperately wanted to manage their approval before God. And instead of abiding in his steadfast love, what'd they do? And instead of abiding in his mercy, they tried to cover for it. They literally made sacrifices for it, didn't they? Human sacrifices. And that's what's happened. I mean, there's lots of intricate details along the way, but in the end, there were some people who took some matters into their own hands, and they really believed they were pleasing God. They were covering for their sin and earning something before God. And just like the Mesopotamians and just like the Greeks, in an effort to fix a problem, they just made a bigger one. So here's what this means for us. We can see that what happened this last week points to our broken and sinful nature to manage things and take control for ourselves and the the devastation that takes place when we do and the brokenness and violence did you catch that in hosea these people resorted to violence because they didn't resort and lean on the steadfast love of god as far as i can tell the events of this past week were caused by people who did not know that vengeance belongs to god So what that means for us is that not only in our daily lives with one another do we begin to receive and admit failure, not only do we as a church begin to admit and receive failures in a club of failures, chief priest failure leading the way, but it also means that as we look out into the world, we begin to extend mercy for people because we recognize that they're just trying to restore something that Jesus has freely fixed for them. And try as they might to to offer sacrifices, burnt offerings to, to sacrifice. God is over there saying, look, this is what I want. I just want to love you. I just want to give you that which you cannot earn. And may the events of this, lack, this last week remind us that if God had not called us, if 
God had now called us together and offered his steadfast love to us freely despite our own failure. There, by the grace of God, but for the grace of God, go I. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you so much for your mercy. Um, Sometimes that seems invisible, especially after a week like this. In the moments uh, ahead for us, as we begin to wonder and doubt if you are real and if you are good, would you begin to just remind us of images of Hosea running to restore his loving wife? or his unloving wife, and to demonstrate faithfulness despite her unfaithfulness. In the moments that we have doubts over your love, and even right now, there's, there's some in this room, God, there's, there's God, there's some, some in this room that, that don't believe this Jesus and have never heard this good news. Would you begin to open their mind and, and release them from the doubts that they might have, that you might be a God that's for them and with them, and not a, a God that's out to destroy them. Would we open our eyes to the possibility that you and your steadfast love have restored us to sonship and as daughters and as, as children of a loving God? We no longer need to earn our way into it, but instead the price has already been paid. And we call you great and great father because of it. God, I also pray, would this begin to mark us as a group of people? Would would be the, the team of people, the, the people on a mission to demonstrate this steadfast love to the world, both by the way that we experience the steadfast love deeply and abidingly in Jesus Christ, but also the way we demonstrate that, that steadfast love to one another. Help us to let go of the masks and, and hiding and, and let us receive those that are hiding. Help us even, if, if, if we were to see someone hiding, if we see something in someone else that we know deeply abides in us, would we, would we push in there? Would we ask and say, man, don't, don't hide that anymore. God is good. His steadfast love is never ending. His, his mercy endures. He's patient. He's slow to anger. Let us be the kind of people marked by that kind of steadfast love. Let us not be the kind of people always trying to hide our failures or cover up our sins, but let us be the kind of people who, because we know how much God loves us, we openly confess it and we run to you for help. In the end, all the nations will be called together to to celebrate this good love. And they will cry out that you are merciful and holy. May today be one step toward that great and good day when you, Jesus, come back as a king and loving brother, extend that mercy to us. Open our eyes to it. May we declare it with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. At this time, our ushers are going to...